UCLA, the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, Dr. Gayton has written a book entitled For Christ's Sake, Can We Talk? The Good News for Racism, A Dialogue That Makes Sense. He has been married to his high school sweetheart, Ellen, for 48 years. He has a, a daughter, Tabitha, and a granddaughter, Jasmine. When he is not at school or church, he enjoys taking walks with Ellen, reading, working out, and being on a golf course. All right. <laughs> And let's give it up for Dr. Gayton being with us tonight. And last but certainly not least, we have Miss Lisa Fields, one of the world's most sought-after female apologists, combines her passion for biblical literacy with her heart for sharing uh, God's love to all those she meets during college at the University of North Florida. She took a New Testament course that shifted the trajectory of her life. As a pastor's kid, she was familiar with church, the Christian faith, and the importance of reading the Bible. She was also planning a career as a stockbroker in New York City on the first day of her New Testament class, the professor declared, I'm going to change everything you thought you knew about Jesus. Throughout the course, her professor focused on biblical contradictions and textual criticism. In every sense of the matter, Lisa's faith was challenged. She was forced to rethink what she believed and decided if she would keep believing or abandon her faith. After college, she continued to wrestle with biblical concepts and her faith uh, while working in the financial services industry. Each day, she wrestled with God's call on her life to further her education to better defend the faith. She pursued her Master's of Divinity from Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. Her time in seminary propelled her into a, her calling as an apologist. During her last year of seminary, her passion to teach others how to defend their faith was clear. It was then that the Jude 3 Project was birthed. As founding president, Lisa's primary mission for Jude 3 Project is to help the black Christian community know what they believe and why they believe. In August 2018, the Jude 3 Project hosted its first annual Courageous Conversations in Chicago, Illinois. This is first of its kind national event brought together 24 prominent black scholars and pastors from different theological backgrounds to discuss justice, authority of scripture, sexuality, and gospel preaching. This historic event was held at Progressive Baptist Church and was aired on the Impact Network. Lisa speaks regularly at evangelism, uh, apologetic and biblical literacy events and at various universities and churches across the country. She has been described as a dynamic, relatable teacher. She is able to break down hard to understand theological concepts in a way that teaches and equips her audience to defend their faith in their everyday lives. Um, let's put our hands. She graduated from the University of North Florida with a Bachelor's of Science in Communication and Religious Studies, Liberty University with a Master's of Divinity with a focus in theology. theology. Let's welcome Lisa Fields with us on tonight as well. So we're going to just dive into this. I want to say thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate you. Um, I am not the expert. You are. And so that's why we have you here. Y'all are laughing at that. <laughs> but, uh, um, but I want to first uh, kind of get this conversation going because when we started, um, I made it very clear that we started this conversation because I saw this generation being very... Uh, swayed very easily by posts, by things that you saw on social media, by not having a firm grip and a clear understanding on what uh, black presence is in the Bible and what it means. And so my question to you is, what do you think, uh, one of some of the driving forces or, or, or the narrative 
that started the whole Christianity as a white man's religion. I want to kind of start to put a framework to this. Where did that narrative come from? Why has it been uh, so prominent even in today's time? Anybody could take that. I think one of the uh, driving factors for it is um, slaves submit to your masters. Um, the misuse of scripture by slave masters, um, I think, is a driving force for it. I think, in addition to that, pictures of white Jesus, mm. white Bible characters, it all portrays a narrative that this this faith is not for us. This faith is oppressive towards us. Um, and I think that begins to shape. Those two things are some major components, and I, I know the other panelists will speak to some other things, but that I've seen um, to be catalyst for this idea. So um, I'm a historian, so I like to look back at the historical record. And the way that I would answer this question is the origination was in the Portuguese slave trade. Um, because the Portuguese brought with them a specific understanding of difference based on skin tone, um, which then became the origin of whiteness and also the or origin of blackness. So um, the categories that through the Portuguese slave trade and then the English slave trade, which was the second movement, um, de developed the category of Christian and Negro. So there's already embedded in this assumption that a skin tone um, carries with it an assumption about racial or, uh, or religious practice. And then um, whiteness became associated with being free and Christian, and blackness became associated with um, being enslaved and a heathen. Uh, just for my two cents, uh, <clears throat> I agree with everything I've heard. And uh, I'd like to mention that um, it is very important to lay the proper foundation for the, the birthing of any kind of movement. So you go back into what's called intellectual history to study the origins of different thoughts and patterns. And, and we find out very clearly that from, you know, after the, 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 the gospel message teaches the creation, then the fall. And uh, since the fall, we have developed what's called a, a, a sense of ethnocentrism, what you find out within the ethnicities of people, uh, especially European on this issue. Uh, ethnocentricity is when you feel like your ethnic group is the center of the universe and that everybody's subordinate to you. So Henry the Navigator, uh, when he landed uh, in Lagos, Nigeria with his, with his shipment that came up uh, with the Catholic Church's endorsement, uh, I think one of the mindsets, we see the mindsets, is that, um, so Henry the Navigator, in fact, one of his chronicler says that, you know, states as testimony that when he, when they unloaded, unboarded the ship, that uh, his prayer, his prayer, first of all, he said, we tithe to God two slaves as a tithe to God. Wow. And then he said, um, and then I said, Lord, um, this is his prayer, the chronicler. Uh, Lord, I don't understand uh, this thing. You have a, you have ordained us, us as the Europeans, and Portuguese in particular, to be the people, the paternal leaders of the world. So that colonial attitude. And his prayer was, Lord, I don't understand um, the suffering that you want us to put the Africans through, but 
but I know that uh, he said this phrase, he called it ordus salutis, which means order of salvation. But I know your sovereign plan is to move them uh, from slavery to Christianity. And then you had a man in later in history, Carl von Linnaeus and Immanuel Kant, who actually taught uh, the chain of being, that, uh, that, that evolutionary thought that white man was at the top and then uh, Charles Darwin, I think, in The Origin of Species, he's talked about how, you know, they were made from uh, chimpanzees and the Asians from the orangutans and the, the black man from the gorilla. And so we were kind of bottom of the food chain. And so this ethnocentrism began initially in Europe with the endorsement of the Catholic Church, which indeed uh, causes it to be sanctioned. So you can see that their colonialism and their imperialism was coupled with Christianity. And because they were the dominant military force, whoever wins the war gets to write history from their perspective. And so this binary conflict between black and white goes all the way back to Immanuel Kant, uh, who put us in conflict dualism with each other. And then all of these leaders, Carl von Linnaeus, if you're in school today, you read about Carl von Linnaeus, and you may not know about it, but uh, uh, the category of plants, classification of plants and animals, well, Carl von Linnaeus classified humans too. And he said, you know, whites were at the top, blacks were at the bottom. So this classification of humans, this overt racism that came from the intellectuals, and I like to say that indeed that is a real important point for us, is that that you know we, we, we recognize that everything starts with the devil, but I know that also wicked imaginations of men, and especially smart men, uh, you know, it's a, it starts with the intellectual. I think it was Aristotle said, you know, the, the intellectuals make the uh, laws and military forces and the, the average person follows it. You know, so that's why you go back to intellectual history to see the origin of things as well. Now, we've had a few that nationalists, we tried to say blacks too, but I'll, I'll say this and I'll be through. Not only did whites... Uh, take Christianity, and then we have a few blacks later on reacting to the whites also claim this ethnocentrism. But you'll notice, in, you'll notice in history that the people that were attacked in it is that everybody had to start with removing, removing the Jewishness from the Bible of Jesus and Mary and the church, and then replacing the Jewishness from Scripture with their own ethnicity. See, and that's where it becomes white man religion or black man religion because the Jews are get kicked out. And I'm sorry, Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> and, and yet that, that you have to get rid of that. And when you study the church fathers, be it Augustine and certain others, they were rough on the Jews. They just felt like they should be blown up and shot. And Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, he said that he wrote a book called All Jews Are Liars. And he, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the, Germany, uh, Hitler actually read Martin Luther's book, and that was a seed that was planted in him. So we got the intellectuals, and that's why there has to be intellectually anointed people to respond to this stuff. I'll talk about W.E. Du Bois a little later. That's good. <laughs> that's good. Anybody else want to piggyback off of that? Okay. All right. Um, when, when, when we look at how Christianity was shaped, what was Africa's uh, role into shaping 
uh, uh, Christianity, um, once we move it from Jerusalem, Palestine, once we move it out of there, what was Africa's role of shaping modern day Christianity? I know we talked about the church fathers, we talked about the development even in Ethiopia and, and uh, Carthage, we talked about the shaping of it. Can you just elaborate on any of that, of how Christianity was shaped in Africa? So I think one of the most helpful things when we're engaging people that uh, take on this idea that Christianity is a weapons religion is to always push them back further in time um, and to go to early Africa um, and talk about how Christianity was shaped in North Africa and talk about how it was the early African church fathers that shaped the Christian, Christian doctrines that we hold dear to today, Tertullian. names? Do you remember those names? I taught y'all good. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so um, this is out of my wheelhouse entirely because I don't focus on the um, early era. I like, I'd like to focus on America. And then when I do focus on the earlier um, era in America, it's on Native American peoples. But Lisa said something that I want to pull out. Um, one of the things that I'm interested in is memory and the way that memory shapes identity and how crucial it is to um, a group of people to be able to tell their own story and to be able to tell it in a way that reflects like who they are. And so the erasure of the fact that Tertullian and um, uh, Augustine are African um, 
just dovetails with the narrative that develops in, in Europe in the 1500s and 1600s that links Christianity to whiteness or Europeanness. Um, and so there's no place like cognitively to allow for um, these Africans that are wrestling and developing and coming up with foundational concepts in um, the third century when the European ancestors were not even thinking about Christianity. So um, like being able to hold on to the idea that Christianity is European a means creating a specific history and a specific memory that excludes a group of people. And so I do think that an important part of um, for, for people and churches that are interested in reclaiming a history that like locates them within the history of Christianity, then reckoning with these erasures becomes central. Um, I'd like to mention, you know, when we talk about Africa, it was philosophers, and philosophy has a lot to do, philosophers have a lot to do with a lot of decisions that are made through history. And uh, George Hegel, the German philosopher, uh, wrote a book that's used in academia to this day, uh, The uh, History of Philosophy, or the philosophy of history, I mean, and in it he states, and I cited it in my dissertation, that uh, we there's no reason to pay any attention to Africa when we talk about the progression and advancement of civilization. Africa as a continent has nothing to offer the rest of civilization as far as going forward. That really was a death blow to many because it was Africans who shaped the mind of Christianity in the third century. Yeah. And even the creeds that were written later, the seven creeds that were written, um, they, the mindset that came to the creeds outside of uh, the, uh, the um, uh, Julius was established in African synods. And when you read books today, uh, you'll hear a lot of reference to Oriental studies uh, or the Latin fathers. Well, the Africans are not called Africans. They're called Latin fathers. And I say uh, that's because they could speak Latin as well as anything else. And so to skew their background, they were called Latin fathers. And then as far as the paintings of Jesus being white, I believe it was Pope Julius II who made a decree uh, told Michelangelo and, and uh, uh, the others that from this day forward, you, you will paint everything religiously white. I mean, that was a decree. And I've been to the Sistine Chapel in Rome. And sure enough, I looked up and everything was white. And uh, <laughs> I, thought, I thought, my goodness, okay. But then when you go to the old country during the Byzantine era, all the icons in the world, I've been to Russia and all these places, they are, they look like me. They're all like me from the older world. So that's when the color line was not yet an issue uh, in, in that. But that's something that we face. Now, images are important. Now, I, I host a show right now on uh, Impact Network called Power Principles. And I'm, I'm at my set where I, I'm on weekly, uh, I set up, I have a, 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 a Lord's Supper scene in front of me on the counter and all the disciples are black and then if you look to my left Jesus on the wall is black and when I was a cha chaplain in the Federal Bureau of Prisons 
when the Muslims came down, you know, to riot and stuff like that, they come to see the this the Negro preacher who's been duped with the white man's God. Then they come into my office and Jesus was black on the cross and the disciples were black and they were befuddled. They were disheveled. I mean, <laughs> what, what, what kind of black man is this? I mean, what, what, what is that? But see, they didn't realize, and that's a really important point, that I believe it was um, uh, one, one scholar, he called us history's amnesiacs mm. because we live with another people's memory. Wow. And you will be, a, as long as you live with somebody else's history and knowledge of it and not your own, that people remain a child and therefore someone paternally has to watch over you. That's why we must, I gave a lecture at Howard University and I said to those students, I said, you know what, when we talk about doing our homework, and I'm, I'm going off sidebar in a second, because I used to be the principal, the high school principal at Providence High School here in town. Right? So I put a whole lot of people through college and sent them off to college. But here's what I said to our own. In light of where our forefathers have come from and what they've been through, even in this nation, you owe it to your ancestors to become the best you can be. Uh, thank you. I got one amen. <laughs> and I don't care. The point is, our people have bled and died and suffered like we have never suffered. I've never eaten anywhere they said colored only or I swam somewhere where they wanted to pour acid in the water. I've never been through that. But my father, yes sir, and my, my forefathers, they were. You know, they were, they were slaves. And so in my family, it was like, oh, you going to school. Oh, oh and you're going you to know some books. You're going you, to know something. And so you study to honor your ancestors and you're never going to change this world until like W. Du Bois said we need the talented tenth until you become all that you can do and learn to love God with your mind as well as your heart we're going nowhere we will remain children because we are history's amnesiacs living with another people's memory I'm so glad y'all came out tonight no I'm just kidding I'll keep going this is so good okay so Here's, here's, we're going to get into this and, and dive into this from this perspective. Does the Bible endorse slavery? So I would say, I think Esau Macaulay starts uh, with God's original intent when he addresses this, this issue. Esau is a New Testament professor at Wheaton yes. College. And he starts with God's original for for marriage and how because of the hardness of heart of the people of the children of Israel God made leeway for them for Moses to create a divorce kind of amendment because of the hardness of the people's heart um, so it, it, it was how to mitigate human sin because this is a common practice so how do we how do we manage it um, so it's not condoning it, but regulating what already exists. Um, and so I think that's important to note. Um, so when we go, when we fast forward from Old Testament to New Testament, and we talk about uh, sin in, in the New Testament, um, Paul tells them, if you could get free, get free. 
Um, but if you can't, this is how to behave in the process. Now, I think we come into the text thinking it's a democracy. But these are the minorities under Roman rule. So they're under Roman oppression. So he's like, um, we, he's trying to mitigate their responses in the midst of oppression and suffering. So how many of you seen, have seen Harriet? Harriet, the movie, okay. Um, well, in the movie Harriet, I don't want to spoil it, but she's going, obviously Harriet Tubman, going back to free the slaves, and she goes back to try to free her sister. And her sister doesn't want to be free. She's like, everybody can't do what you do. And so Harriet has to live with the reality that not everybody wants to be a revolutionary. Paul is dealing with the people that not everybody wants to rebel. Not everybody is going to get free if they can. So because everybody can't get free, how do I manage those who want to stay? So they won't be um, burdened in addition to what they're dealing with. How do they act? So if you don't want to leave, if you can't get free, this is how to respond and not the, the, the situation not be harsher or more cool on you. And so I think we think about everybody's not going to be Nat Turner. So if you're writing to an oppressed people and everybody doesn't want to be Nat Turner, everybody doesn't want to lead the rebellion, everybody doesn't have the opportunity to get free, what do I tell the people who remain? And so I think when we come to the scripture about around slavery, we need to think about what Paul was saying. Now, we also need to include that slave masters manipulated the text. And they took, um, they played on the ignorance of people who couldn't read for themselves. And so, um, one of the reasons people jettison scripture is they say, I can't read a book that's oppressive to me, right? But the reality is slaves, masters didn't want us to read scripture to begin with because they knew that it was liberating. It was saying that we are all made in the image of God, not just the white man, the black man. We're not three-fifths human. We are made equally in the image of God. So if they didn't want us to read the text and they put literacy laws in place for us not to read scripture, then that means that the ultimate protest against white supremacy is to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You are keeping me from a book that liberates me, but because of how white supremacy works, I accept the, the limitations they give me and I throw away the book very that's my liberation. So that's, what I would that's good. I want to, um, Dr. Dennison, if you could do this for me, using that same question, can you can you slide over to Manifest Destiny and how that played a part and explain that and tie those two together if you could? Again, I'm a religious studies scholar. I'm coming at this from a very different perspective. I'm not a theologian. So one way, like when my students ask me these questions that are like wanting me to give them the answer, um, I say it's complicated or also it depends on who you ask and when you're asking. Um, because if you're asking the slaveholders in um, the pre-Civil War era, yeah. Not only is there slavery in the Bible, but it's also ordained by God. Mm -hmm. And that um, this idea that the, we've already 
establish that there's this conflation of people of European descent with Christianity and with true Christianity and also this sort of God-given right to go conquer the land. Um, and um, the Bible is, um, from my perspective, ultimately a neutral text. I think that there are narratives that are both anti-racist and also things that could support oppression and have been used to support oppression. So um, it's how it's being deployed and in what contexts it's being deployed. And yes, Manifest Destiny is very much an extension of the ideologies that shaped the Atlantic slave trade and shaped the um, idea that you can just take and dehumanize and um, extract resources from the land and think of humans as resources that can be extracted and moved and used for other purposes to extract other resources. You can move out west and steal people's land um, and without any thought of it because you're operating from this ideology that this is not only protected by the Bible but, and protected by God, but this is what you are supposed to do. And so it justifies all sorts of terrible atrocities um, that, um, and is like rooted in text. It's a selective reading of the text, yeah. um, but um, it is very much like read through this biblical lens. And I often ask my students um, to do an exercise well, where I will give them um, um, speeches from both the abolitionists and then from the slaveholders and about interpreting the Bible and like ask them to evaluate the strength of the argument from a like use of scripture perspective and they are very often very troubled that the slaveholders have this richer text to draw from um, but that doesn't mean that the Bible isn't anti-racist I think that the um, there are numerous movements and numerous theologians across time that have shown very clearly that the Bible can be used to um, fight oppression and fight the idea that human, like there's ranking among humans. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if that answers the way it that does. you wanted to. Yeah. It does. Yes. That was a scholarly yes. response. Yes, it does. <laughs> now it does. let's move to the theologian. <laughs> Everybody's in their lane. <laughs> you know, when we look at the gospel in the text, all right, you have four parts. You have the creation, the fall, redemption, consummation. All right, that's, that's, the, that's the simple approach to the whole Bible. It, it becomes more complicated because the word of God is profoundly simple and simply profound. But the point is, is that slavery, when you, when you as Lisa was sharing, that we have to understand that uh, Jesus and Paul and different ones argue that from the beginning it was not so. So because we're gospel-believing people, we must go back to the beginning. And because God made all mankind, humankind, ha-adam, to be uh, the image bearers. The image bearers. So each nationality, each ethnicity is a son and daughter of God. I mean, we are the apple of his eye, and he, being Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, uh, distinct but inseparable is the character of God. And because we're his children, we have distinctions, but we are inseparable because we're all his children's. Okay? Now, understanding that, once we fall into sin according to the gospel, falling into sin, then this 
this evil seed of ethnocentrism rises his head. So in human history, since the fall, you cover the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you see the primeval age, but then down, I mean, everything's going downhill until Jesus comes, all right? But here's the point. In this fallen state, when war took place, we know that whoever won made slaves of the people they fought. All right? Okay, that, that was all about war. All right? And so whether Rome or the Greeks won war, even in Africa, continent of Africa, if one tribe beat another tribe, that tribe became their slaves. All right? Let's also make a distinction between uh, servants, you know, or, 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 or slaves owned in the fact that you were an indentured servant, which meant... I owe somebody some money, so I'm going to come work for you under your, your leadership until I pay off my debt. So there's indentured servanthood that has to be dealt with too. Now, when Paul writes his household uh, uh, codes, we see that Paul is looking at, hey, there's only a, a, a fledgling group of Christians just start getting started in the walk with God, and they are, they are a slim minority and so to, you're going you're gonna to overtake Rome? I mean, that's not, that's not, Martin Luther King said, you know, let's, let's go the way of love because war, we're going to lose. Okay? Because that's just the way it is. So he is stating what he knows will help keep them alive and also give the church the, chance, the opportunity to continue to evangelize. But I'd like to make this distinction because I brought this up in a debate with an atheist at Jacksonville University. There is a difference between the biblical endorsement of serve of uh, indentured servanthood because when Israel they were told when you make slaves there's a way to treat slaves huh if you hit them and they die you're in trouble and you also have to let them go after they've served their time with reparation yeah and and so there was a way to treat them and God said now listen if you're walking under my Theocracy, God's in charge, then there's a way indentured servants are to be treated. And I expect you, Israel, the nation that is bringing a, the true knowledge of God back to planet Earth, even the way you treat those you may be in war or however they come in your own nation, there's a way you treat them. Now, that is distinctly different from the slavery in America. And I would contend that the slavery in America... Christianity, well, there's a thing called deism, too. And this is where you believe God made the world, but he walked off and said, do the best you can. And when you mix, when you mix de deism with what? Imperialism or colonialism, that became the white man's religion. Because Jonathan Edwards, I went to Reformed Theological Seminary, and Jonathan Edwards, you know, the hero for them, said, uh, I believe we're all, you know, just like the blacks we're going to be we're going to come to Jesus we all need Jesus we're equal at the foot of the cross he said but there's no way I'm going to be in heaven with them you know what I told the Lord in my prayer time make sure I sit right next to him make sure that I sit next to Jonathan Edwards so I can say hey bro what's up what's up he gonna freak out because he just needs to come alive and so the treatment of the the dehumanization of the American slave is not what the Bible taught. So the context is really important because America, which claimed to be a Christian nation, that's not exactly true. There may be segments of the population who were Christians 
and because there were abolitionists, but America as a whole was not a the theocracy under the tutelage of God Almighty. And so that, that, that dehumanization is caused us to suffer from what's called post-traumatic slave syndrome to this day in the midst of our people. So slavery is not endorsed by the Bible. If you read the word of God clearly, you'll see that the real spirit of the text is liberation. That's the spirit of the text. Liberation. Israel wanted to be free from Egypt. That's the main, the lead, lead motif of the black church. Exodus 3.14. This poor man cried. There's a difference between Eurocentric hermeneutics and Afrocentric hermeneutics. The black church begins from this, this, this hermeneutic. This poor man cried and God heard. Because we... We are suffering from existential absurdity in America. We, we hear God saying he loves us, he approves of us, he, he admires us. And then we go back out into a society that says, you're no good, you're less than. I ain't got time for you. That's the, that's the intellectual or existential absurdity of our existence. That's why we need the power of God in our lives. And so that is a huge divide. And the church has to wrestle with it and wrestle black and white church together. Because my, my book that I revised, Lisa, is called uh, The Good News for Racism from Liberation to Reconciliation. God wants us to be liberated, to be reconciled one to another by the grace of God because that's the vision of the one new man that the Apostle Paul had said there's, that God wants everybody, all his children, to come back together. So that's why our cry for liberation is not a hateful cry. It's, it's a cry because God meant for me to be liberated. He told us to love the poor and reach out for people and care for them. And we should treat each other the way we want to be treated. I want to piggyback on that just for a minute because, and get your questions ready because I'm going to come your way. When you talk about from liberation to reconciliation, do you think that because of a lack of uh, cultural or spiritual identity, that now we have gotten to a place where the church is no longer willing, black or white, um, that we're no longer willing to get to that place of reconciliation, that we are stuck in liberation mode from the perspective of, you know, the most segregated hour is Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, right? Because that is the time where black people go to black churches, white people go to white churches, and there is no um, true reconciliation. So do you think that that we are stuck in liberation mode, or is it because we have not reached a place where we truly feel liberated, that we feel like we can move on to reconciliation? Well, I contend that the gospel, the knowledge of the gospel, the gospel is the power of God. And if you're walking in the truth of the gospel, and I mean walking it daily, not just a, a gospel as a gate into life, but as a modus vivendi, a way of life, then liberation takes place all day long when, when you're walking with Jesus, as you should be, led by the Holy Spirit, for sure. But in order to talk about the past, even in this nation, we have to look at it. We bear the pain. But white America has to look at it and they will have to bear the shame. But we must come to the table in Jesus' name and get it done. Now, the black church, one of the reasons that Muslims and stuff don't want to be bothered with us is because we have not preached an Afrocentric hermeneutic. When I was at Reformed Theological Seminary, and then I stopped, 
uh, I was in a class with 24 Presbyterians, white pastors, right? So we were an Oxford professor there and stuff. So he called out a text and went around and asked each pastor. I already got a Master of Divinity degree. He wanted everybody to please interpret, exegete the text for me. And each one gave their thoughts. And he heard all of them. And he, that was number 25 in the class. So he said, uh, Van, um, what do you see when you look at the text? I said, I see racism. He said, well, I'm funny because you're the only one that saw it. He said, we are all, if we're not careful, we can all suffer from cultural blindness. And when I did my dissertation at Reform, I can say it now because I'm graduated, got my degree, and I ain't going back. Um, usually, the defense of a dissertation took about a half an hour. When I wrote the good news for racism, and, and first of all, the president of the school read it, my, my defense took an hour and a half. And he came in with two stacks of books ready to fight me. Well, I didn't want to fight him because I wanted my degree. You know, I, 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 but now that we're through, what you want to do, you know? But I got to get that degree first, you know? So we, we have to, the black church has to realize that when Christianity is dying out in America as it is, yeah. then the black church, we got to make sure we take care of our own, just like Jews are taking care of themselves. And they can talk about their problems in America celebrates. We bring up ours, and they're like, oh, you're going to go back to that, huh? Well, you know, there's a traumatic experience that really didn't end yesterday because yeah. we're still going through it. So I think we have to have an, an education to our own and live in that, yet with a, with a heart beating for reconciliation that we embrace all, that we can be distinct from each other but inseparable just like our God. Gotcha. Anybody else want to pick that? I think when it comes to the practicality of reconciliation, I always think reconciliation about reconciliation holistically. And I don't think, in general, people know how to reconcile. Can y'all hear her? Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I think that reconciliation, I repeat it, um, reconciliation has to be holistic. And I don't think on practical, on a practical level, we know how to reconcile. So I'll go to these racial reconciliation conferences, and I'm like, this is good, but these are, you're talking to about you're talking to people about racial reconciliation but they have fragmented personal relationships so they don't talk to their parents they don't talk to uh, former friends they don't talk to cousins they don't talk to people they once love and you're telling them to go and reconcile with a different race that they have no personal connection you see the disconnect it has to be holistic because what will happen is you'll go into racial reconciliation um, conversations without the patience and the discipline that you learn. So I would think about it like Mr. Miyagi, he's teaching him wax on, wax off. What is this for? It's for when you actually do karate, when you when you actually fight your opponent, you have the discipline. So I think if we reconcile in our personal relationships, it gives us the discipline to reconcile racially. And I just don't think America, we live in a mean culture where cut off culture, the cancel culture we live in a church culture that tells you you gotta cut off uh, somebody to go hire God, you know, and not understanding that we're the body of Christ, God is not, is not cutting off the arm to take the whole body Yeah. Um, to take your arm up but leave the body down so we have in black church culture, it teaches us to be fragmented, but then we tell people they need to reconcile with another race, well that's going to be harder than what you would have done with your own people 
So if you disconnected from your own people, how are you going to then have the discipline to connect with another race? So I think practically we have to be consistent in what we, how we think about reconciliation. That's good. So I have an academic perspective. Um, there's a really interesting soci sociological study um, by Christian Smith, who is at UNC Chapel Hill, and it's called Divided by Faith, and it's old. He did this in the um, late 90s, um, but I do think it's still relevant today because he did some um, statistical, I mean, he, he um, um, did some surveys and then also did some interviews with people, and he looked at um, reconciliation churches and was asking the question, why are these not working? Um, because that was just the story, that they were falling apart. And um, he comes up with this very interesting analysis about how um, white people are structuring what it means to be saved and what it means to be whole versus what black people are thinking. And he, it, like, it ends up making like white people look very bad, as it should, I think, in this situation, because um, he found overall um, the, the white people that were engaged in this reconciliation project were approaching salvation from this very individualistic view um, and like not thinking about all of the structural inequalities that produce like well produce really nice living conditions for them first of all but then also very difficult living conditions for um, the black people that are attending that congregation and so there's just like an inability to understand um, what like it means to be a black person in America and what it means to operate within a racist system, multiple racist systems, um, whereas um, a white individual would be just approaching it, well, why don't you just fix yourself? Um, versus we need to fix the system. And so they're not even like speaking the same language. Um, and so um, I'm totally fine with saying that white people need to like start realizing what um, systemic racism means and what a racist policy is and how to engage with those racist policies. Um, and then from like building off of from Christian Smith's work, like that is the place where um, rec people can operate within the same intellectual system. That's good. Go ahead. Any any questions? I want to make sure I get anybody got any questions. Y'all good? Are y'all getting something oh, from this? Okay, all right, go ahead. Okay, um, I just want to piggyback off of both of them one more time, is that as a result of being a teacher, teaching philosophy uh, in a University of Buffalo, and then community colleges, and then I was also the principal right here in Jacksonville of Providence, uh, the high school students there, and I'll tell you a story because this story uh, helps us to see the practical side. Um, as the principal, I taught apologetics for years at, at uh, Providence as they get ready to go to college. And uh, so the English teacher who has a master's in rhetoric asked all her seniors, uh, you need to ask all the, talk to all the teachers at your level and just ask these 10 questions. So uh, a, a very famous lawyer in town, his son, came to me and said, uh, Dr. G, because that's what the kids call me, Dr. G, can I come after school and ask you some questions? I said, sure, you can do that. Now, this helps, this helps us see this, Mark. So he gave, I'm, I'm at the door watching to see which kids are using the crosswalks and which aren't, because there's going to be some detention going on there. And so uh, anyhow, he got to the final question. He said, all right, Jack, Dr. G, last question. I said, all right, what is it? He says, 
wouldn't you like to go back to the good old days? And I looked at him. Now, he's a white student, right? In fact, most of 98% of them were white. And so many out, there was 2% at blacks at Providence. And they had 98%, and I was the first black principal. And I said, go back to the good old days. You mean the slave ships where millions of people died? You talking about the auction blocks? And you talking about share the plantation fields of you? You talking about the hangings in the tree? You talking about those good old days? And he turned totally red. And I said, I'm just messing with you, man. But here's <laughs> what I saw behind it. We learn in school Western civilization history. And boy, God bless America. Let's go. America, make America great again. I don't know when that was. <laughs> but I don't want to go back. I, I, no, no, no. We're going forward. You know? And so, so you know, we, 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 but listen to this. We don't have a place in America where we learn Western civilization, but the black history is only a footnote at best. It's just a footnote. So whites in America and blacks, if you go to a school, I went to a public all-white school, all my life, every teacher I ever had was a white teacher, even in college. And then in seminary to get my doctorate, I had all white professors from Oxford and this one and that place, all of them white. Well, they know little, very little about our history. And I'll just say this. And so we need to rewrite textbooks where we talk about Western civilization and, and approach it the way the Bible does. You know, God said, David, man after my own heart. But, you know, he committed adultery, murder. Then tell the truth. America, white privilege in America does not see because they walk in white privilege. You know, and so, but if they read our history, if they had to sit down and listen to our history, then they could be more sensitive and the dialogue could be more effective because there's structural racism going on as well. And in the black and white church, one of the things we have to reconcile is that we can't come together unless we have a, 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 a understanding of justice. That when, when when I get pulled over by a cop, I, I want to hear, I want to see my br white brothers go, oh, no, 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 you ain't going to shoot him or hurt him. You see, then we can, we can hang together now. You're going to talk like that for me because we have an appreciation for justice together. And that is crucial for all of us. You know, even down to theology, my area again, uh, redemption, the, the term redemption, pada or goel in Hebrew, and it means for white America, it meant deliverance from sin, guilt, and shame. But for the Jews, as well as black America, we say, all right, I get that. Deliverance from sin, guilt, and shame. But the part, they leave, they, that's a truncated statement because the rest of the statement should, and the sin of human imposed oppression. Uh-huh. That's the rest of it. That's why we need to go to school so we know. So we know. And, and, and so, again, if we rewrite the textbooks of America, starting with the lower school, and teach them the truth of American history, the ugly side of American history, the savage side, because you know when they say the Africans are savages? If I was, I've seen some savages that have got degrees in America. You know, so let's not get it twisted here. Let's tell the truth in love yeah. with a goal. I'm going to tell you the truth, but I want to be reconciled. I want to kind of uh, shift this a little bit in this 
takes a little left. Um, how has Christianity shaped even a um, a misogynistic point or sexist point of view towards women? So let's move from race. Now let's get over to sexism. How does that? How has Christianity been used, properly, improperly? <laughs> Love women. Love. <laughs> Can you speak to that? Anybody? So I think um, we have to understand um, when we're interpreting scripture that not all scripture is prescriptive. Prescriptive is descriptive. So what that means is sometimes it's just telling what happened. It doesn't mean go do what happened. It's telling what happened. So when I think about uh, what Phyllis Triple calls text of terror, Text about Dinah being raped. Text of which I think is the most horrendous mm -hmm. is Judges, the Levite and the concubine. And does anybody know that story? Mm -hmm. Okay, a couple people. Well, Judges, the culmination of Judges, and Judges, there's this whole thing Israel does what is right in their own eyes. And you see this repetitive cycle where they're in bondage, God sends a judge mm -hmm. to deliver them, then they're all excited, then they continue to go back into disobedience and they go in this cycle. Well, it always highlights their doing in this process was right in their own eyes. And you get to the end, there's a story of a Levite and the concubine. The concubine goes um, to her father um, to get away from the Levite. He comes and gets her. On his way back, they stop at a place. I can't remember the, the, the place. And some men come to get the they want him. They want to, to rape him. And he, um, the man says, "We got the, the Levite throws his the concubine out for her to be raped all night. Then in the morning, she is almost dead. She um, she dies. And in the process, I'm, I'm really severely uh, shortening the story, but you have to go back and read it. He cuts her body up and sends it to the 12 tribes. And then they make war. And I'm like, wow, that's really crazy, because why are you mad at them when you don't want to go out to be raped? Um, so you're the cause, but because you're doing what's right in your own eyes, you think this is justice, when you should be just as responsible as the people you're, you're sending that out to. So I said that to say, when we see texts like that, that's severely problematic as a woman reading that, you start to say, "God is God for me? Does God care? Does God see me? Am I disposable? Um, and I think it's really important to note that those texts are just telling what happened. They're not showing God's heart for women. It was a very patriarchal society. You can't yes. deny that. Yes. Um, men saw women as property. And this is, you go back to God's original intent for women, both made in the image of God, male and female see that women are the first people to share the gospel. Yes. The first preachers of the good news were women. They're going to tell the men who are scared to even go. Yes. Um, you see Deborah as being a judge. You see women all throughout that are fierce. You see Esther saving the nation. You see God seeing women. And he can identify even with sexual shame, talking about how he was exposed on the cross, exposed sexually, 
there are many women who, because of patriarchal, patri patriarchal society, especially African-American women in slavery, that were sexually shamed. And then we're hypersexualized hyper um, through the culture. So I think that piece about understanding descriptive and prescriptive is very important as we read in the text because there are some, as Phyllis Triple talks about it, of text of terror as it relates to women. Yeah, I don't have much to add to what Lisa said, but um, I think that the emphasis that the society in which the biblical texts were written was very patriarchal. Um, and then um, there were these moments of um, um, women who were apostles and followers of Jesus. And then after um, um, Jesus's death and resurrection, um, women that became significant leaders in the church. But the um, forces of the patriarchy are very strong. And it's very like easy to just revert back to the idea that women are inferior to men. Um, and that patriarchy get, is entrenched in European culture and then in American culture even to this day. Um, and so um, then you can't, like whenever pe people are reading a, a scripture, they're reading it through their own cultural lens. And so they're looking for things to affirm the reality that they already know. And if the reality that they know is misogynistic and racist, then they're going to be pulling out those examples from the texts that are misogynistic and racist. Um, and, and if somebody is anti-racist and um, anti-sexist, then they are going to be looking for the pieces of the text that support that. And it is there. Um, and it can be a text for liberation, as numerous people have shown um, over many hundreds of years. Amen. Well, I agree. We, we, we have grown up in this world ever since the fall. You know, if we go back to the beginning, it wasn't so. Women were not mistreated. God made Adam and Eve. They were created simultaneously because Adam is what we call an androgynous being, a hermaphrodite. In other words, Eve was in Adam when God created Adam. And then she was brought forth from the side of Adam, which is a supernatural outcoming. But the point is, is that God created both. And so just as much as he feels about humans, so he cares about that we treat everybody he made with respect because we are the imago Dei, the image of God. And so I, I agree with Lisa very strongly when you say the difference between descriptive versus prescriptive. Let me give you some descriptives. You know, when... Uh, 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 when um, Abraham wanted to get wanted to go into Egypt. Uh, he told Sarah, you know, tell him you're my sister, right? And he didn't mind that the king was going to take her off and just have his way with her. And he's married now. How many married men going to let you just have your way with with their wife? That's not going to happen. But he, to save his own neck, he put his wife on the line. Lot, when he went into the city. When the angels, when the, the men came from the city, wanted the, them men to, to come out to him, he said, listen, I got two daughters. Y'all can have them. He was willing to have them raped over and over again to save some angels that don't need any help. Right? But the attitude. So that's a descriptive. That ain't, ain't pre-scriptive. Pre don't follow that. Even Paul, who gets a bad rap, 
when he said, let the women keep silent in the church, uh, listen, that's in Corinthians, as the, you know, as the law says, you first of all, you say, well, what law is he talking about? But again, the research shows that that was called a subheading verse. In other words, Paul was simply in a two-way conversation. He had received the letter, and he's responding by the Judaizers who were trying to refute everything Paul said. So Paul says in a re response, he says, the word came by you because what law says that women are to keep silent in the church? Well, it's not in the Bible. From Genesis to Corinthians, not in the Bible. But if you read the Talmud, there's a section in the Talmud called the Sota, which has a the laws of the repudiation of women. And the eighth law in the Sota, the laws of repudiation of women, says let the women keep silent in assembly. So there's nothing in the scripture. And then in Greek language, when Paul says, I suffer not a woman to teach nor yourself, men go, see there? Women just got to keep quiet. You, gotta, you can't be, no, I'm not listening to no woman. Well, it's Greek text, so, so translations are important. Maybe Paul was saying because they're in Asia Minor, where the, I've been there in Turkey and other places, where women, were, the, the, the uh, writings said that, uh, Gnostic writings said that Satan, created the world not God and that uh, Eve was made first and Adam was made second and so they just reversed everything right so Adam so Paul is really saying I suffer not a woman to teach these things that a woman is to usurp her authority over the man so he's not in the Greek text saying women should not teach he's saying they shouldn't teach this doctrine that's what he's really trying to nail down for them. And so if we don't know the context of ancient history and the zeitgeist, as it's called, the atmosphere, then we misinterpret English words because we don't understand the true context. So, you know, it's important. The only advantage that a man has over a woman most of the time is physical. Now, I've met some girls I don't want to fight either. All right, I, I no, I don't, I, no, I don't, want, I don't, I don't want to do it. But you know, that's the only advantage, really, because women. I live in a house full of girls, and they're all smarter than me. They got their grades through the years because I walked with them. They did better be. My daughter and I, we finished our doctorate at the same time. She graduated with .02 points ahead of me. Lord have mercy. Why? Because God said, the man Adam needs a helper, somebody to help a brother out. So how you helping? How you letting them help you out if you dominating them? So you gotta you gotta put HBO on your forehead. Help the brother out. <laughs> Let the woman help you because you ain't got everything, and everything you need is right there. I'm I'm through. <laughs> is this not good, y'all? Are y'all getting something from this? Okay, we're gonna um, kind of wrap it up. I want to make sure any questions, any questions. Y'all look like y'all got some questions, but y'all scared to ask. Y'all scared to ask. Thank you. I know. I know. I'm like. I know. Priscilla got a question. <laughs> Ain't nobody else got a question. Priscilla got one. Come on. This has been amazing. Thank you guys so much for honoring us and coming to our church. My biggest question is, I want more. Like, I want. I want to know more. I want to read more. I'm raising a daughter, and I want to make sure that she she has her eyes open to resources and tools. So, if you have any recommendations on places you'll be to speak, or books that you recommend to read, or resources and places that I can find more, so that I can educate myself, so that I can educate my child, that would be beautiful. Um. So. One resource, I'm going to make a plug for our organization, G3. We uh, just produced a curriculum that was written on the 
and it really is a beginner's guide for uh, a contextualized approach to understanding um, black, the, the topics that we face in the black community. Um, one of my favorite books uh, is uh, J.D. Otis Roberts, Liberation and Reconciliation in Black Theology. Yes. Um, one of the most transformative books that I've ever read. Um, uh, just a basic apologetic book. I would recommend Mere Apologetics by Alistair McGrath. Um, I would recommend for understanding just black history and the contributions of black people throughout the black church, the Encyclopedia of African American Christian Heritage by Marvin McMichael. Um, the Encyclopedia of African American Christian Heritage by Marvin McMichael. Um, it's, it's fantastic um, how Africa shaped the Christian mind by um, Thomas Oden. Oden. Yeah. And also, um, there's a new book coming out uh, by Dr. Vince Bantu that that really dives deep into early African Christianity behind, outside of the Latin Church Fathers. So he's going to be talking about um, some other people that are not usually mentioned. Um, and I can't, those, those the names escape me at this moment. Um, but our, our podcast also, G3, I in, interview black scholars from all across the spectrum on a variety of issues. Yes. Yeah, J-U-D-E-3. So let me kind of plug that just for a minute. So this whole is Christianity a black, uh, white man's religion is Lisa's fault. I told her when she came in. Because I listen, I've been listening to her podcast for a very long time, but she, um, her podcast has opened me up to many things I did not know, uh, uh, theologians, scholars um, that I had never heard of before, and exposed me to a different world. That podcast is amazing. She also has videos on YouTube as well. Um, she has a conference that she does called Courageous Conversations, where she gets scholars and theologians in a room together and they debate things. And so I would advise you, if you are really looking to go deeper, look up her podcast. I'm telling you, it is very extensive. You will, it's not something you can listen to in passing. You kind of have to sit down and listen to it because there's going to be some stuff that you're going to be like, wait, what? What was just said? But um, so I was listening to her podcast um, and it dawned on me of the stuff I didn't know. And I figured if I didn't know it, I know that we didn't know it. So I was like, okay. And I started digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And if you notice some of the stuff she said, I said as well. Okay, so you know where I got it from. Anyway, um, and so um, I also took that, that class that she has. It's on her uh, website, uh, that Jude 3 website, uh, the curriculum. Um, it's very, very good, and it's a, it gives you a launching pad for where you need to go to study this in depth. It's really, really good. So I just want to give her a plug real quick. Um, she has an amazing, amazing job doing the Jude 3 project, all right? And I'm going to plug it like this as well. You also need to donate to it so that she can keep it going because it's so needed in this day and time. All right. That was a free plug just thank for you. you. Thank you. All right. All right. Yes. Any, any more resources? Uh, well, number one, I've written a book that's an e-book, Amazon.com. It's called The Good News for Racism from Liberation to Reconciliation. And within that book, you'll see my bibliography where I suggest a lot of books that I cite in my dissertation that are for reading. And I admit that it's these books deal with it on a higher level, uh, but it's there for the, for the education. Also, secondly, 
um, <clears throat> at the church 320 right here in town, uh, uh, Bishop Stan Williams has asked me, uh, every Saturday morning from 8 to 8.30, I host a show live on Impact called The Power Principles. And I am covering this these issues on the TV program because that network goes to the whole nation, to Africa, to Canada, and because I've taught at a university level, et cetera, for Black History Month for a long time, uh, I, I, I hit those subjects. And uh, so my, but one of the main things that I flow out of is the, the, uh, the gospel, the good news, that everything we look at, we must look at it through the lens of the good news as we study our history, as we study... Uh, everybody else's history and our problems. If you're not living in the truth of the gospel on a daily basis, you're going to get sidetracked and end up mean and nasty and mad and want to shoot everybody. But the gospel is the power of God. And so you need to look at it, and that's why I present it that way. So the program is every Saturday at 8 o'clock on the Word Network, and there's a, an app for it, for cell phones, etc. And then uh, the books... The book that I wrote, I've got a bibliography in that, and I live right here in Jacksonville as well. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Brandy, can you, Dr. Brandy, can you talk about your book as well? Um, sure. So my book is um, about contact between whites and Native Americans in Colorado and Utah, and the way that um, religious identity framed the contact, and at varying points, the way that Native Americans engaged in a particular type of Christian identity um, in order to um, protect their own heritage and their own traditions. Um, but and then some of them like did in, in find things that were useful in Christianity. But by and large, the group that I tr um, um, worked with, the Ute Indians, um, really retained their um, indigenous practices, um, even as like they might also attend the Methodist Church on occasion or um, some of them says, but if you can get free because of the geographic location. Um, but um, no. so, so that book would be really useful in thinking about how Why um, racial identity and, men and memory interface in this with um, there were levels of uh, religious identity the and the slaves, way that those three things can slaves. actually come together to create what he is um, saying each other. So I, I argue that um, and um, race and religious identities are co-constitutive, that um, especially when, now, if we look at the about, um, Atlantic slave trade, that it becomes very clear when you have that binary of Christian versus black so, or African. That. Um, and if you were called while you were the slave, ways that this gets played out it. with other ethnic groups um, it mimics the same pattern. Um, but I do like I do have other. I, I'm very sympathetic to your question about um, how you give the resources to your daughter to um, because I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and um, I want to make sure that they know doing. everything about um, slave, the, the good, bad, and ugly about American history. And I'm and fairly Jesus certain that they're not going to be getting it from their and public school the curriculum. Master does um, to me, so I'm always on the lookout does for that now um, um, a variety more. of resources. Now, and because of my research with Native Americans, I found a couple of books for kids that tell the story of dispossession and massacre. Yeah, my three-year-old was time. They thought um, that but you know what? what? I mean, I, like my justification was three-year-olds who are black have to live with the reality Watch of this. their race so in a way that my daughter does not. Um, so she should know about it too. Um, and so 
I'm constantly talking about this. Paul and, wasn't um, saying if you are a slave, don't worry about so, being free. And, he is saying if you are a slave like and something happens to you, don't let that doubt your salvation. Um, but I do have, um, I, I listen regularly Context. to a podcast. Because if you talking about the uncircumcised being circumcised, um, he said don't worry about, about that. Because that circumcision um, don't make you safe. in America. Um, and then he switches over to the slave and says, listen, if they violate you, don't carry the guilt of that. Don't um, think there's something wrong with your salvation just because that happened to you. To what is he dealing with? He's dealing with um, the reality then, um, of what was going on. Just recently he read, is not um, endorsing by, slavery. Um, He's saying, this is what it is. And since this is what it is, and it ain't going to change, let me tell you how to deal with this. And he mixes his what own he's telling the slave is no matter what you with, go through um, or no matter what you've been through God thinkers still loves that you. he found very useful for Jew, structuring his Jew. own anti-racist thinking if you are um, gentile be a gentile but if you are a slave you can get free get free because he knows watch this like, why is he telling that if you can, can get free what, what do if I you can do be now? free get free because he knows that slavery puts certain hindrances on how you can serve lots of African American history I teach a class on religion literature and arts in America and I think there's free, one free. white author that I teach. Paul it's sees very sneaky the potential moral problem with slavery, and he says, if you can get free, get free. Um, Go over to Ephesians 6, chapter, um, verse number 5. <laughs> so, um, Ephesians 6, chapter, verse number 5. Things that you might this find is what they love yes. to call. I forgot to say, I did bring a book by Dr. Carl Ephesians Ellis, Jr., my friend, who wrote a book called Free at Last, and this is excellent. He, he's pioneered in this area. And secondly, uh, I belong to a society called the Society of Pentecostal Scholars, and uh, we meet yearly. In fact, we're getting ready to go out to Vanguard University in March. But uh, I'm going to be bringing a, a group of the black scholars, Pentecostal, to Jacksonville, and uh, we're going to meet and talk, and I'll be able to host them on the show that I have, etc. But these are minds that you need to hear and see uh, that are... Spirit-filled believers, uh, they're black and they got PhDs and demons and they are learned. Like, do you know that in America, the, the, the uh, Jamal Hopkins is the only African-American scholar who's, who's a, a Hebrew scholar in the Dead Sea Scrolls? I mean, that's just unheard of. But all of them, the I know them, I'm, I'm meeting with them, we look but they're coming to Jacksonville because we're going to host some shows. And then lastly, uh, I, I am the academic dean the of the Williams Bible Institute Seminary right here in Jacksonville, the Church 320, that has an online uh, Bible program. And uh, you can get a diploma plus a degree, and I'm the professor for that. So in classes, I cover a lot of issues that will are part of the online program of the William the Bible Institute is, Seminary we like right it here to in America, Jackson. a Christian, supposedly, a questions. Christian nation, where we say slaves yes, submit to your master, and in theory, they could so easily uh, watch this. Powered by so that we think of it like this, Moses and Miriam. Where if uh, you, you said have a Moses went back and who don't like what's going on, he went back and Miriam changed the for law. the power that the blacks have. That I want to know how I'm going to find out more about that. Christians were only 50 to 100 people in that one city of 100,000. Which means, here we go, they had no political power. So about what now? They don't get political power no, for another 300 years. So because they had no political power, oh, okay. they just can't we go talking out about, and change okay, laws. Because gotcha, gotcha. you, you are thinking of an um, American um, standpoint, we were talking we don't about like how, something, um, we'll just change the law. That is not the context Moses, they are living in. Um, uh, this is why you got uh, to read the Bible in a different had, way. That, because that Miriam sometimes we can put had so much of Western culture with, on top of what's um, really going on. And that's not what's happening to the, in the Ethiopian. 
Christians and are the minority in a Roman Empire with no more political about that clout. They don't that get any issue uh, uh, was that she was Ethiopian, which was, a sign, was, fact, which was a status symbol of that time. Really That's what we looked at in, in history. Um, Christians, that Moses when had they this Ethiopian woman, he wanted clout, to find out. You wanted to see where you can get more information on that or dive more into that during this time. I think. But in this context, um, what does Paul actually um, do with the Christian slaves and the Christian masters? Yes. He's trying to say, here's the context of what's happening, and here's how to tell you how you got to do this. Go to Ephesians 6, chapter, verse number 9. And you could go on there and I think that's just a couple verses down. You could put any. Watch this. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them. Since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with you. Here's some more commentary right now. <laughs> um, I find it very interesting because I've used this. You know, when, when Cain was marked for killing Abel and they, and they tried to say, the, the you know, we suffer from, uh, the whites suffer from imperial Pluralistic hermeneutics, what they say is the way it is. And they said, well, he was turned black. That, that was Roman world. Cain's mark. I, understand what is I said, well, in this story of Miriam and Aaron coming against Moses, uh, Miriam was put outside the camp and turned white with leprosy. So does that mean all white people come from leprosy? Just if you're going to use the mark for Cain. But, but here's the commentary I want to say to add to that too, quickly, which simply is this. Back in that day, the Ethiopians uh, were the high of society. So Moses, coming from slavery to the Egyptian, he married up when he married the Ethiopian. Not down, up. And so, but this is amongst black folks in general, you know. Because I, I preached in Calabar, Nigeria, and I talked so the first night about colonial Africa and what the white Europeans did to Africa, the Berlin Conference, all that stuff going on. But then the second night, I talked about what Africans do says. to Africans. And you I think in America, we have to deal with yeah what the whites have done to us, but we need to, to we need to deal with what's happening in our own neighborhoods. And we as a people need to come together and see what way God brought Israel out the way he needs to bring us uh, as slavery, yes. now you got all these scriptures that don't, yes, don't say nothing like that at self all. Self-hatred. Yeah. Self-hatred. The context is so, not the same yeah. from an American Any other questions? Do y'all see this? Yes, sir. I think I lost some of y'all. Y'all sleeping? Y'all ready to go? So There's no sexual, sexually assaulting your slaves. So, so really masters, because you have to give an account. Because you have a heavenly master that you have to give an account to. So it, threat, it treats the slave as a fellow image bearer who deserves dignity and respect. And in return, Paul tells the slave, watch this, this is the hard part. You just can't leave. You can't run, culture. But you had to treat your master with respect. I'm in a mixed marriage right now. I have been for 49 now, years. Now, that might be, here we go, my daughter emotionally unsatisfying for you. And when I first got, became a Christian, you this want is in my book, I opened to my line book up with your emotions. I joined a fellowship, and uh, they wanted me to stand up before the whole conference. This is Christian But what Paul filled, is actually doing is he is dealing with the, the, the real ethical situation in his church's time. They want me to stand up and say realities of today, the the reason God was blessing me is because I have repented of So he reminds the slave and the master that they both have a heavenly father who you have to give Yeah, but for my daughter's sake, 
I through my book that I, I told you about just now is that I in that book I walk through and show all the mixed couples in the t Old Testament that God used to do great things. So the point is when cultures mix, when ethnicities mix, uh, God has ordained two tribes of the twelve tribes of Israel were from Joseph married to Ephraim, the Ethiopian girl, the Egyptian woman. And so they had two tribes, so the inheritance, so God. Because when 